This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the N, the O. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. The date is September 11th, 2019. Race Capital would like to add to the conversation today of hashtag never forget. And we will never forget September 11th, 2001. But today's conversation is also about never forgetting the history and patterns that have gotten us here today. One of the great narrators of our history and storytellers that we've had was Audre Lorde. And we've heard her quote, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house on the show a couple of times now. Chelsea, you brought it up once Mm -hmm. and we heard Candace Lucas bring it up in kind of a contrarian view saying, oh, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can do this. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to unpack a little bit more about what the master's tools are in today's context, what they look like, who the players are, who is the master. Yeah, and it really revisits this bigger conversation of the system. System, right. And who's at the table, what types of people, what roles of people, and how the table that we're building matters, even if we're working inside the system or outside the system. What does a table look like with both ends of the system in the same room? Yeah, because I think a lot of people wonder, people who want to get engaged or people who maybe feel disengaged and marginalized by, quote, the system, right. don't know at which end to start. Right. And there are many different ways to bring justice. There can be a justice through the law that we see happening or people attempting to do. And then there can also be justice through resistance and the idea of protesting and bringing to light the system that isn't as trans transparent as we deserve. So today on Race Capital, representing inside the system is Senator Jennifer McClellan and representing grassroots outside the system is community activist Duran Chavis. They have the trust in us to come together and have this conversation about really the continuum of political engagement. It's not a side, but how do we navigate the narrative that it's either one side or the other? So let's jump on in. So we're really excited for this conversation today, and I'm just going to start off and let the guests introduce themselves. Let's flip up the script. Gentlemen first. Oh, hi. My name is Deron Chavis. I am the community engagement manager at Lewis Ginner Botanical Garden. Um, probably, I don't know, decade or decade and a half community activist advocate in the city of Richmond, native Richmonder, father and urban farmer. Mm-hmm. Any other platforms you got? Uh, Happily Natural Day is a festival that I manage. What else? Uh, yeah, I just do stuff that's related to <laughs> cultural identity and community wellness. 
Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that'll suffice. That'll suffice. Duran is being, uh, he's probably still exhausted from the amazing weekend of Happily Natural Festival, but I didn't want you to just sit on that like it's just a thing. Yeah. 17 years in the making, I mean, it is, it's a Richmond tradition at this point. Yeah, yeah, we just came off of the 17th year, and I am a little bit cloudy because it was just a lot of energy, but it yeah. was really positive. Uh, we did a racial equity dinner dedicated to the food system. Mm-hmm. Um, we and gauge that uh, platform with a racial equity ticketing system where uh, white men and white women had to pay more than black women and black men in addition to farm workers. And it was a really powerful experience to have vulnerable conversations around race and class, specifically here in the city of Richmond. I don't think anyone's done anything like that before. And it um, really revealed that you know, we need more conversations like that. And lastly, you brought up an amazing point that I want to continue about who set the table for that. Yeah. So usually equity conversations are set by white organizations, foundations, nonprofits. And this experience was different in the sense that communities of color set the table. And, you know, we engage the conversation from our point of view and perspective as to what is equity, what it looks like in real time and what issues are most resonant for us as it relates to a practice of equity more than just a conversation. And um, I think that's what really made the experience as visceral as it was. Um, When a foundation sets a table around equity or a white nonprofit sets the table around equity. It calls forth people with a different type of interest and agenda. And when communities set a table and invite those who are traditionally the holders of power into the room, it changes the dynamic. And it changed, it really, I, I think it changed the conversation in a resonant way. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that's why I couldn't just allow your intro to just be, yeah, that's, that's all you do. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Up next. So I am Senator Jennifer McClellan in the 9th District, which is Richmond, Eastern Henrico, Charles City County, and Ashland. I also chair the state's Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission, which does a lot of work to continue Dr. King's work through education and public policy and commemorating and lifting up stories that are often untold of black history in particular. Um, Mother of two children, wife of Dave, (laughs) (laughs) lawyer, and history nerd. Yeah, yeah. The senator could also go on with a lot of the the chairing and committees that you serve on and the different spaces that you take up. I know that my experience with the senator is literally I just saw her everywhere (laughs) for the longest time. I was like, if there is an elected official that pops up everywhere, you were doing that. And before the special election is really when I started paying attention and I was like wow everywhere like the small rooms the big rooms and saying the things that many other politicians wouldn't and through a way that was showing history and showing facts the other thing that I appreciate about the senator is anytime we have a legislative review or questions about legislation I'm gonna be real y'all she 
is the one that sounds like she understands the process, the bill, the opportunities, and the people and players to make the legislation happen. And I just don't hear that from many elected officials and that stance. And I'm not saying they don't know that, but be able to articulate that in the moment when people have questions and to deliver the importance of the bill because they are so complicated. I just really appreciate that sense of communicating to people and community that you are able to do that. Thank you. Yeah. And so whenever there are the legislative reviews before session coming up, after we you know, get her back in elected, because November 5th is coming up soon, right? Everyone understands that's happening before 2020. So as November 5th comes up and as session comes up, you're looking to find out more information on bills or have questions. Senator Jim McClellan is definitely a great source for that. Not to mention her office is super responsive. Yes, yes. I that was going to get there. Yeah, go. A survey of every Richmond state official, delegates, and senators, and your office was the only one that answered the phone. Oh, wow. Moreover, I emailed and left messages, and nobody except for maybe two other folks got back within 48 hours, but your folks were on it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty important value that we have is, I mean, we, you can't represent people if you don't talk to them and they can't mm. access you. So right. that's my what? job. <laughs> it's my what? job to be responsive. It's hard. And it is, I will admit it is very hard and our office is growing and we have like interns everywhere, but that's, that's really why is so that we can be responsive. Yeah. Also too, I mean, not just answering the phone, but being able to sit and meet and just answer questions. Like I remember sitting with you and talking about just, I had no idea, like it was a, a problem about policing and you were just able to sit down and talk about different opportunities different ways the questions like just really showed that you understood the landscape and also just respected me enough to like sit down and hear out the concern of it right a lot of people say thank you for coming I'll take note of it and keep it going like there was a dialogue there and if I also remember correctly uh, you had to eat your lunch during that but you it, it, that's the life of it right but still thank you for giving me that time during your lunch period to sit down and, and have those conversations so as I invited these two guests coming today, I was very intentional about who I have at this particular table and the voices as we have a conversation about the system and where we sit in the system and how we play our role. I really wanted Duran to expand on his community work because I understand, I see very intentionally how you are working outside of the quote unquote system. And Senator, obviously you're an elected official. So when people think the system, they would put you in that bucket. But first, before we have the conversations about you all, how would you all define quote unquote the system that people are always talking about? So what I usually say when I talk about the system, I usually contextualize it. It's a system of white supremacy or mm -hmm. a system of systemic racism. And I think about the system as any and all elements that have organized themselves institutionally as well as interpersonally, but most specifically institutionally, that have marginalized, oppressed, and degraded not only human beings, but also the planet. And, and when I'm referencing the system, I usually start with, you know, the system of colonialization, you know, the idea, the doctrine of discover, discovery, this uh, idea of a system evolves from Europeans moving from out of Europe across the planet, subjugating indigenous peoples and stealing land and enslaving people for their own 
benefit and all of the ramifications of that, you know, look like this hierarchy of human values with white people on the top and everybody else on the bottom. And so you spoke a lot of history that I think people would recognize and and say, yes, that happened. That was part of the system. Now, is that the same system that we're talking about in current time today? So, yes, when I when I'm speaking about the system, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about that as a point of origin Mm. and that all of these other issues that we face in our community as evolutions and continuations of that that particular I will I don't want to try to give it a reference point but like the idea of a ground zero Mm -hmm. being you know that and then what we deal with today as like the fallout of that and the idea is that you know there's institutions that were created and evolved you know we talk about the prison industrial system or you know the um housing system and medical system all of these things the nonprofit system nonprofit system right all of these things kind of evolve from one from or at least from my frame of reference evolve from one idea and that is of white people particularly as an idea right not even as a physiological entity but whiteness as an idea creating strategies to maintain domination over not only people but domination over the planet. Wow. Way to make it heavy, Duran. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, that's how I look at it. I that's how you. I see it. Senator? So I think I'm a little more literal, but for whatever that's worth. I, I mean, there are multiple systems, right. and systems are just organizations created by people to do something. And so Duran is right in that when, you know, the dominant people who are putting the organization together establish the culture of that system. But right. I, th- I think that's a little bit different. But so I view the system as, depending on what you're talking about, you know, the system of government, which is how people come together to structure, organize their lives and solve problems or regulate other people and things and he's absolutely right in that a lot of the systems that we have here in america were founded by and on principles of white people but what's interesting is if you study other cultures they also have a system of government that you know there were some tribal governments here that don't look very different Mm -hmm. from what we ended up with. So I think my my view is because systems are made up of people, those systems reflect the people who are allowed to or choose to participate. And so my job in being a part of government and a government created to be by, of, and for the people by white men who viewed the word people to be very narrow, Mm -hmm. the struggle really for the past 400 years has right. been how do we make those values upon which this government was founded true for everybody right and and so that that's sort of my approach to it okay and i appreciate that you you talked about being very literal with this conversation because i engage in a lot of dialogue and one of my first questions is let's be specific about what we're talking about yeah. because i there's not going to be a way that i can do this unless we're engaging and and normally i i ask about 
because I'm usually talking to individuals um, that aren't representing an organization. So I usually ask, is this about micro and individuals or is this the macro and the systems, right? Like what what are we talking about in the dynamic? So I, I do appreciate the very literal conversation, like bringing that up of what system we're talking about, because that goes into my next question to you all of what is your role within this quote unquote system as you all see it? So I consider myself a continuation of resistance to the system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a inheritor of, you know, a legacy of Africans, people of indigenous origin who resisted the impose the imposition of the system of white supremacy upon their lives, uh, whether it be Africans who rebelled, Africans who escaped, uh, indigenous people who fought back, folks who decided to create alternative systems. Right. You know, I consider myself to be a continuation of that work. So when I say that, I mean, I'm thinking about people like Marcus Garvey, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, Gabrielle Prosser or Nat Turner, um, Nanny, you know, the Maroons, everyone from Thomas Sankara, Emil Cabral to Ella Baker, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, people who made conscious decisions mm-hmm. to say that, hey, the system that we live in mm-hmm. where white people are on the top and black people are on the bottom does not work. So we're organizing ourselves to create new systems, new systems. and we are countering the existing system with our work, our ethics, our behavior, and our strategy. So, you know, what I do today, you know, in essence, is really about self-determination, mm-hmm. right? The work of Happily Natural Day yeah. lives in a really clear space about the system creating an ideology and promoting an ideology that, you know, on a very superficial level, you know, says that there's a beauty standard, right? That says that, you know, white skin, straight hair is beautiful and anything else is not, right? Mm-hmm. Out of that, you know, we get deeper, you know, the idea of the system that we live in basically created this contrast where it says that Europeans were civilized and smart mm-hmm. and dynamic and the origins of civilization where as when they engaged with indigenous people and African people that they were inferior, savage and non-human. Right. So where I fit in that is that my belief is that no, that is absolutely not true and we have all this evidence and documentation otherwise. I don't even have to get into that part because that's kind of like why we even arguing that. We live with the realities of that idea right that people of african ancestry were considered inferior so they were dehumanized culture stripped away so the work that i do today is about regeneration i don't even like the word revitalization but right. you know just the idea of recreation of new cultures reclamation of ideas that worked for communities of indigenous ancestry and pulling that into a today where our communities are are and can operate at at an optimal, mm-hmm. you know, within the system. So the senator brought up a really good point about other cultures 
also creating systems that are different but still look the same as far as marginalizing certain groups so when we're creating new systems right like what you're doing with happily natural which you know i got to witness with my own eyes and it is it's it's the standard of beauty of food of joy of business right of of healing how within these new systems as people are trying to organize and create their own mm-hmm. working outside the system because many people that work outside the system are labeled like grassroots radicals right and don't listen to them oh my gosh here they come they're about right. to you know be all loud and talk about things that don't matter um, which we know are not to be true right but the outside the the dominant narrative not supporting of these new systems growing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. N- not inherently but as you are creating them, how are, how can you make sure and we make sure that as we are creating these, we're not also just continuing the same habits and strategies that we've learned and seen so yeah, so right. long. So that's that's why I say you know regeneration mm-hmm. and reclamation. And I ask that because I also want you to pull in because you introduced yourself as working at Lewis Skinner, right? Right. And, yeah, so. and Lewis Skinner is an intersection of quote unquote a system. Exactly. That's part of that. So navigating all of this world because the reality is is we're going to be in and out of a system. It's it's yeah, right. impossible to avoid that. So you know, there's a you know there's a certain sector of our community that believes that you know all we have to do in order to you know, become whole as African people is go back and take everything that existed in Africa and parlay it into today, mm-hmm. right? And that if we take those things from Africa and parlay those things into today, everything will be all in well, our community will be fine. But I think that's a very limited perspective because culture evolves and culture right. and context is very important to analyze. So there's patriarchal systems that don't work in today's reality i mean they don't they didn't work then right right? so the marginalization of women is not an element of a cultural you know idea that we can take into today right Right. you know um, subjugating women is not a reality the subjugation or marginalization of lgbt communities is not an element that we can embrace and and hold so so this 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 concept of uh, indigenous cultures having everything right is something that we really have to inspect because it's not as if there wasn't an imposition right. by uh, Western civilization that destabilized those communities. So what exactly is it that we can pull forward into today that is resonant, that is valuable, that is timeless? So you know that that's that's one element of it. But you asked a question about the grassroots engaging into you know this dominant narrative the work that i do at lewis ginter is kind of representative of this metaphor of a shift that's occurring right Mm -hmm. and i try not to be i try to be equal parts pessimistic as well as optimistic right so i live in a world where i'm radical left and i live in a space that has been traditionally conservative and right wing right right a botanical garden is really in essence uh, a space that in in the South in particular um, has been a space that was groomed and cultivated by garden clubs of Virginia. You know, these majority white, predominantly white organizations that put money up to build out these white castles, you know, all over the South, all over the country, really, not just in the South. So, but today these spaces are wrestling with 
how they can uh, make impact in the community and how they can remain relevant. And, and part of that is defining for themselves what inclusivity means. And I'm always intrigued by those these spaces because, you know, they're the space that talks about biodiversity and, mm. you know, the conversation about biodiversity is resonant in terms of plant collections and the ecosystem and et cetera. But, you know, the staff and boards of these organizations are very monochromatic. So that inherent contradiction exists in these spaces. But the work that we do in community around connecting people through plants to improve communities is a is a is a is a is an intersection yeah. that that is very important, right? So if we can agree that communities deserve beauty, deserve access to you know the skills and resources to make their communities more resilient, mm-hmm. um, then that's something that I'm more than happy to engage in. And I think that that engagement causes those contradictions to have to be reconciled right right? and i love that it's a good pivot to the senator because that's how i feel like how i try to approach many political conversations is finding where we all agree and what we all want and how we can use the law very honestly to get us there and people's voices to create the law to get us there. So I asked the question with Duran about, you know, what was his role within the system? And I would love to hear a little bit about where you are now and also where you've been Mm -hmm. within the system, how you got here right now. Yeah. So I think just as a little bit of, of background. So my view of where I am stems from two things, sort of my faith and, and my belief in the love your neighbor mm. and we are all our neighbor yeah, we are all each other's neighbor mm-hmm. and everyone has value which is the fundamental core of the ideals on which american democracy was built and and that everyone should have a voice and that is reflected in their government and and how so i view my role as making that true by bring opening the system and 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 making sure that that all voices are heard because when you do that, the product's going to be much better. Right. The law is going to be much better. You will find common ground. Mm-hmm. And that's not an easy thing to do because it's it's human nature to only want to listen to points of view that you agree with. Mm-hmm. right? But the more voices are at the table, mm-hmm. the more points of view are considered the better it is for the whole. Right. Um, and so I take very seriously. Which is why you call people back and you invite people <laughs> into your office. Exactly. So I take very seriously. My, my role is twofold. First, I have to demystify the process. Mm-hmm. And I have to reach out and say, he, here is what your government is doing. Here is what issues we're dealing with. Now you tell me what you want us to be doing and come be part of the process. Yeah. But that's only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is when the opportunities are available, take advantage of them. Right. And when they're not a- available, fight for them. Mm. So I can't help but think about you know, the reason Dr. King focused on the right to vote mm-hmm. was twofold. One, he understood that you can't change society and the and the laws if you're not a part of the process so let's mm-hmm. let's get to be part of the process mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but it wasn't just laws it was also where do jury pools come from can you have justice if the juries don't actually reflect a jury of your peers right right 
Now, the other day at the at the 400th anniversary, when Van Jones made a really good point in that one of the failures of the civil rights movement was we only focused on one thing, and that was political and government access and power. Mm-hmm. But that's only one system. Mm-hmm. Right. There's the financial system. There is the media news information network. Right. There's business. And by only focusing on one, yeah. but they're all connected, it's like, okay, great. And he, he, he talked about it in the point of view of, so we elect Barack Obama, we come in, we're in the administration, and we're like, oh, great, we're here, we're at the mountain. And it's like, oh, wait, there are these other mountains behind the mountain. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Shoot. Like, we didn't, we didn't know. So, right. so, so I view myself as telling the stories that haven't been told, right. being a voice for people who have viewed themselves or who have actually been voiceless and then pulling them in to be a part of the process. And I think there's there there are different roles for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it is short-sighted to say, well, we're not gonna listen to the grassroots agitators because if you don't, they have a they have a perspective and a point of view you don't. Right. Right. Um so yeah. So, so on an organizer's level, so you know, what we've always, you know, talked about is that the the idea of um, policy change and direct action are two tools in the tool belt, right? And that once what what we've seen, you know, in recent years is is uh, kind of like a bringing of those things back together. But politically, you know, uh, ideologically, folks have kind of seen these things as separate. Right. That there's a direct action. So we're going to protest. We're going to, you know, do a sit in. We're going to boycott, you know, do this Twitter campaign, whatever. Right. And then like the guys and the people that make policy, you know, the lobbyists, the lawmakers exist in another room. Right. Right. And so I study like social action and like uh, there's a book called Social Action Primer by Dietrich Hessel, he, he talks about this. He talks about us having clear understandings about what we're trying to accomplish and what are the root causes of those issues, you know, and that grassroots activists and policymakers and lawmakers are really supposed to be in the same room. Right. Yes, right? yes, yes, um, yes, yes. But what we end up doing is because we put in each other into these different rooms, we come up with insufficient you know solutions you right, know what i mean right um but when they when we strategically operate together then we can really make sustainable impact because right. the lobbyists understand what's happening to the most marginalized of us which are represented by the grassroots folks they're closest to the problem right proximity right. that brian stevenson yeah. talks about and i i want to bring that up because i i really love the the point that you just made about like the silo focus so i was guest lecturing at ur this week and we were talking about just mercy and brian stevenson and one of the students asked why why he actually asked why weren't people back then fighting and pushing for a more uh, just process with the jury selection why was it then just about like death row like why i don't like he was like there's so many conversations but what i read from this book was just about the awfulness of the justice system just through the juries and i said that is a great question it's exactly the struggle that we have right now there's so many different embattles things and systems and roles we have to fight it's 
the capacity of that. And I see that right here in the city of Richmond of really advocating for Richmond police transparency, but we haven't yet really organized around what that means for our Commonwealth attorney and our prosecutors. And so we're just kind of now understanding how yes the bias is going on in our in our police department but the the black and white the literal things that we could actually control could come from the way that we are prosecuting in our courtrooms and then going back to something that you said earlier too senator was the systems are only going to reflect the people that are participating and that's exactly what Duran was just saying so if we're not in the same room and so our participation even if we are attempting to participate and we're at the door and we're calling and leaving the voice message unless we're there it's still not going reflect us right certainly i think that that comes also from a place of distrust yeah come on and so, trust builder yeah i mean well you know in the in the 60s we saw that collaboration between right. grassroots organizers and policymakers, right so you had people like king and his team who were advocating for policy change and then on the ground you had people like Kwame Ture, right. you know, James Foreman that were like literally in the trenches with, with the people, right? right? Registering voters and et cetera. That dichotomy, I think, shifted and, and, and kind of dissipated to a degree mm-hmm. once the Civil Rights Act passed, you know, and we saw a really strong representation of grassroots in the form of the black liberation movements when people realized it wasn't just about the right to vote. Right. And that there were deeper issues that extended beyond, you know, just electoral Mm -hmm. processes. You know, we saw the Black Panther Party, all of these different organizations that evolved core and some more stuff uh, that manifested after 1965. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. So I wanted to go back sort of 100 years before the civil rights movement because Mm -hmm. it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. Come on. Okay. So right after, you know, during Reconstruction, you saw for the first time African-Americans elected to office Mm -hmm. throughout the South. We had over 100 that served in the General Assembly. We had 22 who served in the Constitutional Convention that created a new form of government, which was the first time you saw public education. And you saw a coalition of whites and blacks working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then there was a backlash. Right. And once, and, and frankly, Reconstruction failed. Right. Because once it ended, mm-hmm. and the old air power structure, yeah, air quotes. Sorry, you can't see that. Um, and the, and the old power structure came back with a vengeance. Yeah. And then dis- and but what did they do? They said we're going to disenfranchise. They focused on take away the vote, so they're not allowed at the table right. anymore. Right. And then there was a very long struggle to get it back. Right. I would say it wasn't so much in 1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed. People said, okay, we don't need to do it anymore. It was really the death of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and the election of Richard Nixon because he recognized that backlash worked. Right. Right. For history. Right. Right. So, so... And then we saw it again with this very long climb of, okay, we got to get back, we got to get back in, we got to get back in, that culminated in the election of Barack Obama. And then there's a backlash. So I think part of our problem Mm. is we don't recognize the cycle Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we get complacent or we give up. Or we, we, frankly, I think ever since Dr. King and Robert Kennedy died, too many people have said, well, where's our next Moses? Yeah. And didn't realize 
you know, Moses knew he wasn't going to get to the promised land. He got you as far as he could, but he recognized you had to get there together right. as a group. Well, I, will, I, I love I, that because you talk about this a lot. And I, before yeah. we move on too much, I just want to say that I Race Capital has been pushing around an article that talks about the readjusters party. And so that's very local in this place, space and time. And what the senator is talking about, these coalitions of whites and blacks working together. Like we have a very rooted story right here in Central Virginia that is posted online. And, and that goes back to the system of core being created. Right. So you're still seeing these coalitions going on. But I just wanted to. Yeah, I was going to drop in. I, I I, I think I would regret if we got out of this show and I didn't and we didn't talk about COINTELPRO, mm -hmm. right? Like the assassination of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and et cetera were very pivotal moments. But at the same time, you know, you had J. Edgar Hoover yes. and his effort yes. to destabilize, yes. you know, grassroots African yes. movements, right? right? Not only African movements, but indigenous movements and Latino movements. So that government program that was used to quelch grassroots organizing in communities and, and, and destabilize their ability to collaborate, communicate, and engage, you know, the system yes. was, um, you know, a, a very significant, I think a very significant factor. Yeah. And it also, I think, parlayed and, and had really important repercussions in terms of how, you know, communities responded to how we organize and engage in community, right? Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's interesting that you brought up those cycles, right? Because it's kind of, I think it's even more interesting when we think about this current cycle and, you know, I guess the um, attacks on Latinx immigrant communities mm -hmm. and, and, and how that, in this, in this cycle right now, right. you know, with that being the fastest growing population, right? how this administration or this pot political climate has created a, spect a specter of fear yes. for Latinx communities. And, yeah. and so how do we, you know, on the grassroots level, as well as our political folks, our, our lobbyists and our lawmakers, how do we meld to create strategies to ensure, you know, immigrant communities, in particular communities of color specifically, are actively able to participate in not only electoral strategies for community empowerment but also grassroots direct action stuff because it's all connected it as is. it should be yeah. right um we've got a few minutes before we hit up what's your privilege so i do want to have a conversation about people that would say they're everyday people right like you all are very distinct in your roles you have platforms someone listening to this and saying how do I get involved i don't see myself as either one on either spectrum where do i fit in what would you say to them I would say find your passion and respond to that. I, I believe that there is no one size fits all for any of this stuff. You as an individual have a, have a particular heartstring that is turned on to a particular issue or a particular type of work in community. And I think that it's most important for you to find and figure out what represent what, what that represents for yourself. Um, so just show up and yeah. what resonates with you and 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 causes you joy because I don't think it's in, I think it's more important for people to find their place of joy in in this work like what I makes you that. happy doing this work versus like you know what makes you what what, what makes you angry like yeah. you know like yeah. if you can find what you love in this movement and this work that's where you need to show up the most. Thank you for saying that, John. I I a hundred percent agree, and the only thing I would add to that is just like it's important for you to find your passion and what fits you. Don't assume that everybody else has to fit in your mold too. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, because there is a place for everyone yeah. doing different things. Yep. And we have to recognize first our own strengths and weaknesses, right? the strengths and weaknesses in others and where we do have common ground and where we complement each other and then partner. Right. But I agree. If you don't, if you don't get joy and feel passionate about what you're doing, you're going to give up at the first sign of trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble. <laughs> so we see per history. There exactly. Will be trouble. Yeah. So, so you've got to do what motivates you. Yeah. Not what other people tell you to do. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, Thank you for bringing up the point that everyone's not going to fit in that motivation, in that role that you do. Mm-hmm. So focus more on how you can work together with that person mm-hmm. versus how it, you're just focusing that they're not doing or thinking the same way. Right. And because we do get so passionate about following what's angry, what we get angry about, it is harder to see the bigger mission and focus when we're just focusing on that type of trigger versus the joy and the hope that we're all working towards. Yeah, we live in a really interesting time where, you know, if I disagree with you, then, you know, it's automatic. I'm shutting down everything about what you're doing. Cancel culture. Yeah, and that's dangerous because, you know, I don't, I'm not going to agree with everything anybody Anybody says. Anybody says, yeah. So, you know, being able to give people room to not agree with you you know, I love James Baldwin's quote. It's like, we can agree to disagree unless your, you know, opinion or your perspective is, you know, causing me harm. Right. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So can't let you all get out of here without participating in our favorite segment of the show. What's your privilege? What's your privilege is a segment of the show where we invite the guests to share with us their privilege that they carry around in the community and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. So who wants to go first? Duran. Oh, man. Um, So the first privilege that I have is that I am an African-American or an American-African born in this country, and I'm not an immigrant, so I don't have the same concerns as my Latinx brothers and sisters as it relates to ICE and as it relates to, you know, this current climate, um, toxic climate. How am I using that privilege? I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I'm going to be totally transparent. I had, I've had the opportunity to engage with some of my Latinx family and talking to them about what is it that we can do to help make sure that their voices are heard and the things that they would be afraid to say due to re- the repression mm-hmm. that occurs if you're outspoken and Latinx. I think that it's important for us to try to figure out how we can be a voice for those individuals who might not speak out because somebody might come and swoop in and snatch up their family or friends or cousins. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. So Thank how do we speak for them? I appreciate you saying that you're still learning and the way to do that is to get close Mm -hmm. to the population and listen. Mm -hmm. So my privilege is I am an African-American woman who is in the first generation of my family to be born with few legal restrictions Mm. and who, you know, the great, great granddaughter of a man who was born four years after the civil war ended to parents who were slaves who fought not only to get the right to vote but to participate in the process tooth and nail and now i'm an elected official yeah Mm -hmm. um in a state he was in a different state but i mean in a state that like his tried to keep him out right 
And so I have to use my privilege to get other people in yeah. and, 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 and represent their interests. But I'm always cognizant of where I came from. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think about where, you know, it's amazing. That I, I, we've done a lot of genealogical research and we can really only go back on my, on both sides to, you know, great, great grandparents. And there's a certain amount of sadness that we don't know the full extent of where we came from, right. but we're very proud in what we do know. And, and I and my children and them more than me are and will be the culmination of our ancestors' greatest dreams. And we owe it to them not to squander the sacrifices that they made for us and to make sure that people who either were left behind or feel left behind or are falling behind or worried that their descendants will be left behind have an opportunity not to. Thank you for that. And bringing up the cycle of history and how we can use that knowledge to empower us now brings a lot of emotion to you talking about not knowing the history of your own family and how that is a disempowering strategy that this quote-unquote system that we talked about today has used for generations and what's happening right now to our latinx brothers and sisters a family separation yeah right right well i appreciate what both of you all do in this community my privilege that i'm going to share today is something related to what the senator brought up earlier about different realms of justice to fight and i have chosen the realm of justice and media to fight and push the narratives of political dynamics within the media. And my privilege is that I have found people to believe in me, to support me, and to even spend hours a week editing my voice and my show for free to make sure that this gets out and people hear it. So my privilege is being able to work with another amazing journalist, someone that's passionate about this, and that someone that sees the bigger picture of all the hours that we do for completely for free to bring you an hour-long show every week. Mm-hmm. Because neither one of us had any producer skills doing this. And I was actually about to quit radio. I told the station I'm not doing it anymore, maybe I'll write, and then Kat shows up and they're like, we got a producer, y'all should meet, and we click. She has been writing about food systems for forever and the inequities of that. So my privilege today is having amazing people that are working for me, with me, working with me, and also with Marijuana Justice, the team that's come together that just runs it on itself. My privilege is having community members see something in me that stand with me. So thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Before you leave, how can people follow you, connect with you, and see what's happening? You can connect with me. I'm Deron Chavis on everything. Happily Natural Day is the naturalfestival.com. And also uh, for our urban greening work, you can tune in to beautifulrva.org or beautifulrva on any of the social media outlets. So you can find all the ways to contact me on my website at uh, jennifermcclellan.com. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm Jen with two N's, McClellan VA. Phone number to my office, 804-698-7509. 
someone will pick up the phone. It will. <laughs> or it call sure you back. Will. <laughs> um, and I will be doing town hall meetings uh, throughout the district. So keep an eye out for those. We will tweet out the schedule or get on my email list. You can do that from the website and um, you'll find all you'll we'll tell you every way to find out what I'm doing. So on Halloween night, come to the Arthur Ashe Center for oh, yes. free candy, food, lots of community service organizations. I and my family will be in costume <laughs> to find out who we are this year. You have to show up. Last year we were in the Incredibles. I've been Cleopatra. I've been all kinds of stuff. If you have any ideas, because right now I don't know what to be, uh, feel free to let me know. Awesome. How many? Tasteful. Keep it tasteful. Of course. This is for the children. It's a yes. family event. How many years have you been do- doing your harvest? Oh, gosh. Since 2006. Wow. It used to be at the Siegel Center. We outgrew it. Uh-huh. And uh, we... The first year we did it, we expected 200 people. We got 2,000. So, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you all for being here so much. And um, let's shift the system together. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of trust that came up in our interview just now, I really appreciate the trust that Senator McClellan and Duran have for us here at Race Capital to come on and have this conversation about where they fit into the system. And again, it opens up and highlights Senator McClellan's openness to have these conversations, right? Something she said was that part of her role within the system and in her position is to kind of demystify what that is and what that means. And Chelsea's nodding because I think we're <laughs> tracking with this, as yeah, we yeah. so often are. <laughs> I really appreciated her saying that. I wish we had had more time so we could have asked her to unpack that. Yeah. Yeah, I have that highlighted in quotes <laughs> um, on my notes of that demystify. And that's what I was talking about when I was complimenting her on the way that she talks about legislation and is able to break that down is because she's able to not just demystify the bill, the legislation, but the people, the budget behind it. I mean, the different process of everything holistically that goes into creating policy. And she's able to speak on that in a way I've never heard from any other local politician, to be very honest. And then for that to be her role, to me, also speaks to her openness to transparency, right? And that's another problem that a lot of people within the system, we are asking for from here at the grassroots is saying, hey, just demystify this decision-making process for me. Right. And I think transparency is where the power grab comes in, mm-hmm. because the more transparent you are in some contexts, the more you're distributing your power mm. and or using the power that you have for democratic good. I like that a lot of the more transparent you are, the more you are sharing power, which is actually what you should be doing with the people, the constituents that put you into such a position of power and opening up the door and leaving the door open, as the senator mentioned as well. I really appreciated Duran's history lessons and name dropping so many that I guarantee most of our listeners have never heard of. Even me, I didn't know everybody. So that's our role now to participate in this and Google. That was the first time I ever interviewed Duran. I went home and sat down and that was the first thing I did. Yep. 
was Google. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for bringing up the people that have been doing this work that aren't in our history books that we've never heard the names of before and the different lenses and experiences that we have to have at the table in the history books. Right. Right. And I I appreciated that from both of them. And I think that kind of reflects them as change makers, Mm. whether they're inside, outside or whatever in relation to the system, this thing that we're calling the system is that they come with a historical knowledge. Right. And you have to have the historical knowledge. And that's why here at Race Capital, we bring up so much within history because it better contextualizes what's going on in our own place, space and time right right now. And that change makers comment also comes with like a culture change makers. And I love that that conversation came out about the culture of a system is based on the players that created the system. Mm -hmm. And the context. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That was amazing. I love that because, again, that's how we can unpack so many of the decisions that are being made today, maybe even the proposals that are being made today. What are the origins? Who are the origins that have put this together? And therefore, we can look at what type of culture is going to be created by these new systems. So see who's at the table. Right. One interesting word that was used was regulate. Mm, Yes. About systems as mechanisms of regulating. Right. The idea that law was created to regulate. And that politicians exist to, I don't know, depending on who you ask, uphold the law, change the law. Right. You're supposed to be continuing to find justice within the law. And that means how you are deciding to regulate. The policy means how you decide to regulate people Mm. and access And if we go back to the origins of 400 years ago when Virginia created the first legislative branch and laws were made, they were definitely keeping in mind who and how they were regulating. They created the systems of inequity and now we are here today and we have to ask our change makers, even our grassroots ones, right? Like what systems are you putting in place that will regulate people, regulate people's voices? Because right now, On a political end, and even locally, we have regulation to mean public safety. That's usually the way that it's packaged for us to buy into. But really, safety for who and whom? Who's being kept safe? Is it just your bank account? Is it just your power that's being kept safe? Is it your humility to not have to be confronted with certain voices and questions? Is that what's being protected? Right. And I think the whole concept and action of regulating necessitates a hierarchy. Mm. You know, which comes with power. And so, again, revisiting a conversation about transparency, when you have increased levels of transparency, you're dispelling that hierarchy. Right. And you're making for, you know, perhaps a more just community. Right. And that goes back to Duran's comment about the hierarchy of human value. And right now the way that we are valuing certain lives by regulating them, right? And what that looks like, we can we can absolutely distinguish who is on our hierarchy and where they fit in by the laws that were created and how we are even narrating our laws right now. And I really appreciate, again, about who's at the table. And that goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the show of it's important to look at every table, including these new tables of new commissions that are being made, the tables and the communities that are being 
done for organizing and messaging is your organizing have a target do you have a goal for what you're working for and are you ready to sit at the table with someone else that uses a different strategy yes being in the same room right are you ready grassroots organizers to be in the same room and politicians are you ready to sit in the same room and then to invite the grassroots organizers into the room mm. That's the question, right? Yep. That's the question of, and it's not just in the room, but is that going to translate to law? And we have to be the checks and balances until we can create the trust that our elected officials are more like the folks that keep the door open, that answer our calls, that it's not just a, a couple handful that actually treat constituents as valuable voices. It's going to be important. So there is plenty of room here for everyone to find their space and what role they play because we can't work in silos, as we've seen from history. We have to work in coalitions. Yeah, and and do that. I love so much that Duran brought up joy. <sighs> joy is the force that gives us meaning. And it's, it's hard when you go after something because it makes you angry. Right. Because it's like the senator said, you're gonna disengage when you get to that first hurdle because yep. you, you just won't be able to take it anymore. And that's understandable. Right, and the idea that he brings up the joy of it, too, is that you can find joy in this fight. Right, because everything in our life is political. Right. If you like going out to eat and you like food, then you like something political because food is incredibly political. And we're not just talking about the meals tax. Right. Right. <laughs> right. We're talking about who's cooking the food. Where did the food come from? Yep. How is the food grown? And what did that do to the earth? And so on and so on and so on. Right. Right. And everything is political. Everyone can find their spot. And everyone, including me on this mic, is can be challenged on how we're working together with people that have different strategies. We're not going to be using the master's tools anymore, but we have to figure out what are the tools that are best for our community. And that only comes through talking about history. That only comes from learning and hearing different voices like Duran told us. And like the time right now is to listen to our Latino and Latina X brothers and sisters. I'm really glad that we have this space here in Studio B at WRIR to facilitate these conversations. We were able to bring them into the room. And like you said, I appreciate them for trusting us for entering this conversation. I'm looking forward to what comes next in this studio. <laughs> and just talking about sustainable pipelines, right? In the studio today, we actually have a student of mine from VCU that is out here listening and learning and meeting new people. And it's important to continue to connect new people to this work so they can find their joy. And with that, we thank you for listening. Continue to follow us on all things Race Capital. Have any questions, comments, and or concerns, reach out to racecapital at gmail.com. And we'll check you all next week. I'm from the R, the I.